the focus of American politics and culture is always on the two coasts. But what about the Midwest? What happens when it's ignored? Hmm. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The 2016 Democratic nominee was one of six candidates who won the popular vote of America but did not become president. And since then, the calls for the elimination of the Electoral College have continued to grow. But considering the fact that the population centers in America are on the two coasts, I wonder if there were no Electoral College system to provide a check could the states of New York and California by themselves choose the president, leaving out all those voices of the less densely populated Midwest? Don't those voices need to be heard? The fact is Hillary Clinton's campaign literally flew over many of the less populated states and Donald Trump won the presidency picking up those states which she ignored. The Midwest is a huge geographic area. It is the massive but largely ignored and often misunderstood center of the United States. It's been a mystery to liberals, as focused on in Thomas Frank's 2004 book, What's the Matter with Canvas? How Conservatives Won the Heart of America. It explored the rise of populist, anti-elitist conservatism in the United States, centering on the experience of Kansas, the author's native state. But the reality is the Midwest has not always been so narrowly politically and culturally defined. Our guest today, author John K. Lauk, writes that for too long, the American Midwest has suffered from a mixture of scholarly neglect and ridicule. That doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> and that the American Midwest is the most historically neglected region in the United States. His new book, which we'll discuss today, is titled The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest, 1800 to 1900. He writes, given the prevailing atmosphere of disdain and indifference, readers may be surprised at what a new look at Midwestern history reveals. John Lauk, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Well, thanks a million, Bert. I'm glad to be here. John K. Lauk is the founding president of the Midwestern History Association, the associate editor and book review editor of the Middle West Review, and an adjunct professor of history and political science at the University of South Dakota. He's the author or editor of several books, including The Lost Region, Toward a Revival of Midwestern History, and he lives in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Well, again, thanks for being with us. What are some of the critical and judgmental cliches and platitudes now widely held about the Midwest, which you believe are important to address, which you'd like to address? Well, thanks, Bert. I really appreciate uh, being a part of this conversation. And I think the context you set up is very important. And we'll get to that. Um, you know, there needs to be more attention paid to the middle of the country, I think. And one of the reasons we have trouble seeing it and bringing it into the national conversation are all these cliches, as you say, and all these stereotypes that continue to exist and continue to 
um, hold the or see the Midwest as this retrograde backward place um, where, um, you know, there was uh, not there's not much to brag about. And most people want to leave there. And I'm, I'm just trying to open up this discussion and trying to get people to think about the full history of this country, which includes the Midwest at the end of the 19th century, the biggest region in the country. And it was the place where American presidents came from. It was a place that won the Civil War. It was the industrial heart of America and, of course, the agrarian heart of America. Yes. And we need to give it a second look. Um, it's going to be critical to the shaping of our country and culture and politics down the road, and people need to understand it better. Boy, that's true. We ignore it at our peril, that is for sure. <laughs> and it will come as absolutely no surprise to any listener that I consider myself a traditional liberal and that one of my all-time favorite candidates for president, someone who, in 1984, actually I was honored to become a personal friend, uh, he serves as our guest's home state of South Dakota's U.S. Senator from 1963 to 1981. I'm talking about George McGovern. Since its current reputation as a rock-solid bastion of the conservative Republican Party, South Dakota uh, actually, actually elected a liberal. It elected George McGovern and others as well. The fact is, it's hardly the only Midwest state to do so. Today, <clears throat> in, in the 2020s, the members of Congress, House, and Senate for the Midwest are some of the most conservative to just plain right-wingers. But as it was then South Dakota is today an expansive, sparsely populated state where rolling prairies give way to the dramatic Black Hills National Forest. There's a lot to consider when examining the causes of political changes in the region. Living literally on the edge of the East Coast, where I live, I can only speculate as to some of the factors. Perhaps starting with what happened in 2016 is a good step-off point. My guess is, and, and we'll get into how the, the history of the, of the Midwest has included people of the left, you know, including uh, George McGovern. Uh, I can only speculate as to some of the factors that have caused their changes. Perhaps, again, starting with what happened in 2016 is a good step-off point. My guess is that the region had reason to feel neglected. In what ways has the Midwest been neglected, treated as less than by the national campaigns, and, and what's been the effect of that? Well, I have a great example of that, Bert, but before we get to that, an aside, uh, you mentioned George McGovern and how close you were to him. Yeah. Um, of course, at the end of his life, George uh, moved back to South Dakota, mm -hmm. and I know him fairly well and interviewed wow. him a number of occasions, and the McGovern Center at Dakota Wesleyan University in South Dakota, we had some great conferences there where we had uh, we launched books about South Dakota and American politics in general. Um, but I had uh, the great pleasure of getting to know him mm. uh, final years. And of course, he's a historian. And he earned his PhD in history from Northwestern in Chicago in the 1940s. And that was, you know, a major influence on his life. And uh, he, he, could have very easily become a college professor and gone down that route. But he ended up taking on, taking the reins of the Democratic Party in South Dakota in the 1950s when it was at its nadir. Um, now, I remember 
George talking about this, Bert, but he, as I recall, uh, bought a hotel in New Hampshire where you are located and tried to run an inn in New Hampshire for a few years. Is that right? Is that how you got to know him? Well, no, I got to know him. Actually, I was in Iowa in 1984 working on his presidential campaign then. He did come in uh, third, I believe, and the Stratford Inn was, I believe, I hate to correct you, but I think it was in Connecticut. But he tried to run that, and yeah, well, not all uh, uh, ventures like that turn out successfully. Of course, George was defeated in 1980 in the Reagan wave and uh, lost his Senate seat in South Dakota. Yes. There's a new book out called The Conservative Heartland, uh, which is a history of conservative politics in the Midwest um, and the post-war era. Uh, published by Kansas University Press, and I edited that. And we're going to do a companion volume called The Liberal Heartland, yeah. uh, also published by Kansas University Press, which should be out in a year or two. But that will chronicle a lot of these figures like George McGovern um, that came out of, and Hubert Humphrey yes. and Paul Wellstone, et cetera. Yes. I mean, there's a very interesting Midwestern progressive tradition that's worth exploring that doesn't get a ton of attention. So um, go ahead. Well, that, that's interesting. I had, I, I, I'm embarrassed that I had forgotten Paul Wellstone. I actually, being in New Hampshire uh, and, you know, where all the presidential candidates at least used to come and pay fealty to the uh, elected officials back then, I, I once had lunch with, with Paul and Sheila Wellstone. And I think it's very interesting. There's something about the the appeal of populism that that went so far to the right and people like Wellstone and others who were actually i think i think they could be described as populists they somehow connected in an unusual way with the people in the midwest and it, it, people on the east coast don't often think about that that how how they connected and 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 what happened to to populism? What what did the Democratic Party do to just leave the Midwest behind? And and you know all this tremendous populist energy just yielded to the far right. It's just it's amazing to me. And I, I wonder about Wellstone's appeal and and what there is about that. You know, there's a long tradition of of kind of left leaning liberal populism in in the Midwest, and there's a lot of people who were part of that. Wellstone and I was actually just reading some of the chapters for this forthcoming book about Midwestern liberalism, so it's kind of fresh in my mind. Uh-huh, good. <laughs> well, Wellstone put together a very uh, specific coalition. Of course, he had college age kids because right. he taught at that college in. Uh, Minnesota McAllister, and he kind of organized college kids that way. But he also had a group of miners uh, associated with unions in northern Minnesota. He had small farmers, uh, people associated with the farmers union, for example. And then he had the urban core of Minneapolis. And that was enough to get you to 51 in Minnesota. And, you know, I also think Wellstone, he he was a strong personality, and he had a presence about him, and he was very clever. I remember this great ad, television ad he ran in 1990 when he was running this, uh, uh, you know, low budget. Yeah, low budget. <laughs> is the right way. To say it. And he had this old school bus right. he drove around Minnesota in. 
But he had this ad where he would go into the various offices of uh, Senator Rudy Boschwitz, the Republican senator, and he would say, uh, is Rudy around? I'd like to talk to Rudy. I, I, I'm really like to talk to him about this campaign, maybe get a debate set up. And he would do this in various uh, offices and various places. And there's, so he put together this very funny ad of him kind of trying to chase down Rudy Boschwitz, but it was funny and it was light and it was humorous. And everyone kind of got the point that, you know, Boschwitz didn't really want to debate um, Wellstone, but I think given the civic culture of Minnesota, there was this kind of expectation that, Hey, if you're the Senator, you should debate your opponent you know, you should show up and talk to the press and do these things. And so there was a kind of special magnetism about Wellstone that a lot of people have difficulty recapturing and stuff. But there was a there was a coalition there that was a successful coalition. And this is something that McGovern tapped into in South Dakota. I mean, McGovern got elected in South Dakota to Congress in the 1950s by talking about the concerns of small farmers. Mm-hmm. South Dakota used to be, maybe still is, the most agricultural state in the nation. And so the key to winning there uh, was the farm vote. You know, you remember, maybe maybe this isn't as prominent in other parts of the country, but in South Dakota and the Midwest, everyone used to talk about the farm vote. Yes. Harry did talk about the farm vote and, you know, this continued up until I suppose the 1980s. This was a big deal. I remember JFK came to South Dakota to give a speech to the national plowing contest in 1960 because he, because he was, he needed help in farm country because he was, you know, he wasn't a good fit for it. He was uh, an East coast guy. And, you know, I like JFK of course, but I just, you know, he didn't fit that well into kind of a mold unlike say Hubert Humphrey or Harry Truman. I mean, they could, they could talk that language a lot uh, easier than JFK could, but you know, no one competes for the farm vote anymore. No one even talks about it. And to answer your question, Bert, that we started with the big, the big thing that's happened in the last week that I think is really terrible is the Democrats have decided not to, um, not to keep the Iowa caucuses. Um, The Iowa caucuses is a very famous institution. It was the place uh, that George McGovern was able to get a foothold in Uh 1972. Uh, George McGovern would go over from South Dakota into Iowa in 1972 and start speaking at dinners and started organizing. And it was the caucuses in 1972 that put George McGovern on the map. And that's why he started to get a little momentum and then he could um, parlay that into victories in bigger states. But, you know, that's the Democrats walking away from the Iowa caucuses. I mean, that's really symbolic of um, the abandonment of the center of the country, it seems to me. I, You know, Iowa used to be, you know, definitely a purple state. I mean, it voted mm-hmm. for... They voted for Michael Dukakis and stuff. I mean, it was it was a swing state uh, in recent memory, but it's you know it's gone heavily Republican now, yes. and that is that is a symbol of the loss of the center of the country by the Democrats. I think, and I I, I think there's 
so much evidence of what a big mistake that is to just abandon that area and, you know, to have yielded it. And you mentioned, as I was listening, interesting phrase, civic culture. That's, you know, I, I don't, th- you know, it's not a phrase we hear very often. You write that the, the region, the Midwest, is, quote, a land of democratic vigor, cultural strength, racial and gender progress, and civic energy, a good country. What is this civic culture that, that seems to be uh, not in the consciousness of those of us on the two coasts? Well, what I mean by that, and this is very much represented by Iowa, um, you know, back in the classic days of the caucus, you know, a candidate would go into Iowa and what would they do? They would go speak at a county fair. They would go speak to a local rotary club. They would go speak to the Kiwanis Club. They would speak to the Iowa Farmers Union or Farm Bureau or whatever it happened to be. This is how politics was conducted at this kind of local civic retail level. You know, and these candidates would go up and down Main Street and talk to people. And this, I think, was a very good way of uh, screening out bad candidates and coming up with candidates who connected with the center of the country and were good at retail politics and had a message that spoke to the middle of the country. And now there's, you know, these campaigns are too focused on Twitter and money and TV. This was the great thing about Iowa is you had to go out there and work and roll up your shirt sleeves like George McGovern did and earn that vote. And, um, I remember Dick Gephardt's campaign. I remember seeing some numbers on, you know, how many towns he went to in Iowa and how many groups he spoke to. I mean, he just had a brutal schedule. And of course he was from neighboring Missouri. So he had a, a sense of the place. Um, and, you know, he didn't have tons of money and he was just a congressman. You know, he was a leader in the House, but still he didn't have um, huge advantages. And he just worked really hard and uh, was able to do well in the caucuses. Same with Paul Simon uh, from out there uh-huh. in Western Illinois. You know, he wasn't from Chicago. He was from downstate right. Illinois. He was a newspaper man and, you know, understood the small town politics of central Illinois and so could speak to Iowans effectively. Um, and, you know, I think by blowing up the caucuses, mm. the Democrats are really going to hurt themselves and uh, limit their ability to get those kind of candidates who speak the language of the center of the country. Yeah, that is important, that retail politics. And and as, as you bring up some of these names, being in New Hampshire, being a, a, a recovering politician myself, uh, uh, Paul Simon once uh, came to my house. That was the kind of retail politics that there has been in New Hampshire and mm-hmm. Iowa, and and uh, and we are losing that. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, John Lauk, founding president of the Midwestern History Association. We're talking about uh, the Midwest and how Democrats uh, kind of misunderstand that and what it what it means really to be overlooking this huge part of the country. Uh, his new book, uh, John Locke's new book is The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest, 1800 to 1900. And 
my, I, a few years ago, I was visiting my daughter in central Pennsylvania. I don't know if that would be technically considered the Midwest, but I was reminded of the description of that state by James Carville. He described it as Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Alabama. Where, where I was in the middle of the state was serious Trump country. My guess as to why was, as you describe, it, it's a good country. People worked hard, played by the rules, but they knew they weren't getting ahead. And they were ignored by the Democratic Party. Your thoughts on this? And and could the, the good people, is this feeling that they're working hard, playing by the rules and not getting ahead, is that feeling significant or even dominant in the Midwest? It's unfortunate that there has been this turn away from focusing on the Midwest. I mean, you know, people used to talk about farm prices and the price of corn and all these issues used to be in the national conversation. It's not even talked about now. I mean, so that's that's the turn away from the center of the country, I think. And, you know, there was, we live right on the border of Iowa. So there was some commentary about the Iowa Senate race last time. And people were like, oh, I mean, progressives that I'm familiar with were convinced that Chuck Grassley was going to lose. I'm like, there's no way Chuck Grassley right. is going to lose. He, he goes to every county in Iowa every year. He has been doing so for years. He constantly talks about farm prices and ethanol and things that are important to Iowans. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you're, you're delusional. He's not going to lose. And of course he did not, right. but you know, you, you need to kind of speak to these core issues. And, you know, I saw uh, a stat or a graph in Politico and they were, they were showing where the democratic leaders in the U S house are going to come from. And they had little dots of where they come from. And, you know, it was all California and New York. And it wasn't a leader, you know, elected leader from the center of the country. You know, Pelosi was from Mm. San Francisco and, Danny Stanny Hoyer's from Maryland, and you know they had other sub sub leaders and stuff. I mean, well, that's that's a real metaphor for this uh, failure to tend to the center of the country. And there've been all kinds of questions and a lot of pressure on. Uh, you know, there's a push to do away with the electoral college, and I it amazed me how the Hillary Clinton campaign just ignored that area uh, because there weren't a lot of uh, votes there. I mean, it's it's more sparsely populated, but there is still the Electoral College, which I think, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why that came into being, but I, I wonder if there were no Electoral College, could it be that, that the Midwest would have like even less of a say than it has now. I mean, those there are votes, electoral votes from there, and it's all apportioned by the you know numbers of, of members of Congress from the states. Your thoughts on that? Oh yeah, absolutely. It would be very bad for the Midwest and the center of the country and the Great Plains states because uh, you know that gives them some leverage and yes. gives them a vote. And I think. And, you know, if you constantly hear that Democrats want to abandon the Electoral College and you live in the center of the country, I mean, what kind of message does that <laughs> I mean, they people know what's going on there. They just want to diminish the influence and 
voice of the people in the center of the country. You mentioned uh, Hillary Clinton. I mean, one of the great examples of this, when the history of all this is written, is the Clinton campaign in 2016, if I remember correctly, never visited the state of Wisconsin. Mm. Uh, You know, a critical state in terms of the electoral math in the country. And then, you know, at the end of the campaign, like the final week, everyone started to freak out and scramble around because some bad polls were coming in out of Wisconsin. Well, you know, it was too late by then Mm -hmm. to do anything. And so she ended up losing Wisconsin. uh, And she lost Michigan for the same reason. You know, the old blue wall, as they called it, uh, began to crumble. And, you know, there's a reason for that. And uh, the neglect of this part of the country. I mean, it's a big part of it. Yeah, it was it was dumb. It was really dumb. I mean, just flying over Michigan entire, just ignoring that. And I, I, I just I, I worry. I mean, there's there's 50 states to just disenfranchise that entire middle. Boy, I just I, you know, I I don't think that's a good idea, and I I, I can't help. But think that that the Trump, uh, uh, you know, gang uh, recognized that hey, you know, there are electoral votes here. Let's pay attention to these people. They feel overlooked. They are overlooked, <laughs> and, and and to do that, I, I just uh, it, it it strikes me the Democrats making a big mistake in, in keeping that up. But you write about the history of the Midwest. And it is an interesting history. Well, I, I love history. I mean, there's no secret in that, that uh, 1800 to 1900, the good, the good country. One of my favorite people uh, in American history, I have to say, somebody who's very little known, you know who it is, of course, fighting Bob LaFollette. He, he came from the Midwest. He was a Midwest voice uh, but who was fighting Bob LaFollette? And I wonder if you could tell listeners about him and about the culture from which he arose. Bob and, of course, his brother Phil uh, LaFollette, they were LaFollette. active in politics for many, many years. Um, and they came out of this old civic uh, tradition. Um, and they were Republicans, uh, capital R, um, and they were part of the progressive Republican tradition uh, for many years. Of course, La Follette first ran for Dane County um, uh, uh, state's attorney and then sort of moved up into a higher elected office. Um, Nancy Unger is a great historian out there, and she recently wrote a new book about fighting Bob La Follette. Yeah. Uh, one of my very close friends who unfortunately passed away during COVID, John E. Miller, was a historian for many years, earned his PhD in Madison uh, at Wisconsin. He wrote a great book on Wisconsin progressive politics during the 20s and 30s that um, has unfortunately been uh, long forgotten. But it was a it was a great example of um, this or a great chronicling of this old kind of progressive politics uh, from both sides of the political aisle that used to exist in the Midwest. And, you know, a big key to LaFollette's success was uh, appealing to people in farm country. And, you know, these were people, these were farmers who had their own land, who were trying to make money growing corn, who went to church. And uh, they were uh, these people that inherited the good country 
of the Midwest of the 19th century that this book is about. And LaFala could speak to them and he could win their votes. And um, it's a great tradition. And it's uh, unfortunately kind of uh, fizzling out these days. Mm. But this book is attempting to recreate or describe that old culture uh, that existed. Now, of course, back in the old Midwest, um, from the 1850s until, you know, the great depression, uh, this was the heartland of the Republican party. Um, in the 1850s, uh, the, it's a long story, but in reaction to the Kansas Nebraska act and the spread of slavery, uh, people began to organize a new party in Iowa, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and it ultimately becomes the Republican Party, and it was a party based on the opposition to slavery. Mm -hmm. And it rose very, very fast and elected a president in 1860. And that election, you know, kind of set in motion the Civil War because the South would not abide a an anti-slavery Republican president uh, in 1860. So they seceded. And, um, you know, so from that period on until the Great Depression, the Midwest was heavily Republican. and I mean, very heavily Republican. The Democratic Party was not uh, very strong there at all. Well, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the two parties were very different back then. The Republican Party was against slavery. The Democratic Party was the party for slavery. <laughs> it was yeah. the party of the South and you know, just yeah. entirely different. And, and the word Republican, Republic, hmm. Interesting idea, republic of the people. What a concept. And that, that's right. how it was. And, of course, uh, Bob, and sorry for the mispronunciation. I'm an Easterner. What can I say? It's La Follette, right? La Follette? Is that a pronunciation? Yeah. Uh, my error. Well, see, a lot I don't know, but I'm trying to learn trying to learn a lot of things, including about the Midwest. For those who may have, again, just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about why the, the Midwest, this huge area of the United States that's, that's kind of been abandoned and what, what the, the trend is with regard to uh, th those voices being uh, you know, left out of the political and cultural process. And what that means for America, our guest today is uh, historian uh, John K. Lauk. He's got a new book out, The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest, 1800 to 1900. And, you know, people, uh, there's people like uh, Chuck Grassy right now, but there was Hubert Humphrey, Walter Mondale, Arkansas gave us Dale Bumpers, who I liked very much. I tried to talk in, him into running for president. Uh, Fred Harris from Oklahoma. I mean, Oklahoma? Seriously? <laughs> Fred Harris, a real liberal, who, who once, I, I, he was uh, running for president in 76, and he said he wanted to abolish the CIA entirely. Uh, it seems to me that when, how, what happened to, to, to that? I mean, how, how did those liberals, I mean, you know, in various degrees of, of being liberal, they, they connected with people then. And it seems like, what are people missing today? That, that the, the mainstream of the Democratic Party which is a large stream, uh, uh, you know, I just, how, why did those Democratic 
Democrats win back then? What's different? That, that was obviously not the Democratic Party of the uh, uh, 19th century. Well, I uh, I love to hear the name Dale Bumpers. Boy, I haven't oh, heard that. Terrific. He was oh yeah always enjoyed uh, always enjoyed it when he went to the Senate floor. I mean, he was one of these old fashioned southern senator orators that whenever he went to the floor you would want to listen yeah but he he used to have this saying that i loved um even a blind old sow will stumble upon an acorn now and again and i just loved it and a friend of mine tracked him down one time in washington and had him sign a picture and they gave it to me for my birthday because i love listening to dale bumper speeches <laughs> but oh, it was great you have to you have to meet people where they are yeah. and you have to focus on the issues they care about and you have to uh, address their concerns and you know I just don't see that happening a great deal no. you mentioned um, earlier in our conversation the Tom Frank book yeah. uh, about Kansas which I always I always saw was a little thought was a little smug I mean little I mean <laughs> He was just dismissing the concerns of all these people about uh, what life was like and the kind of life they wanted to protect and they cared about. You know, a lot of which came down to family farming and main streets and these sorts of things. And I just don't hear that those concerns addressed or talked about uh, much anymore. But, you know, in the La Fala days, in the old kind of uh, antitrust days uh -huh. and the days where people focused on the farm vote and corn prices. I mean, those those concerns were addressed. And, you know, we've gotten away from that, it seems to me. Well, there are the, the big, you know, agribusinesses now. There aren't so many family farms anymore. And people, you know, people are, are suffering. And I, I, I do wonder about, uh, you know, the, the image of, of the values of the Midwest you talk about, you know, the smugness of that Thomas Frank's book and others. People, you know, I, I think people perceive there's this culture war now. Uh, and I, I do think people uh, perceive that there is this nostalgia in the Midwest for white Protestant male domination and control. That they people believe there's a fear of feminism and gender equality and gender ambiguity, etc., what what's the reality of this in the Midwest? I mean, is is the the culture war catching on there? Since uh, you know, they're not Democrats. I I don't see them talking about uh, you know the distances people have to travel in the Midwest to get decent medical care and things like that. Well, I mean, you talk about distances traveled. So, uh, what is a really important? Um, practical concern for a lot of Midwesterners gas prices. Uh -huh. uh, you gotta, you, you know, you have to put diesel fuel in your tractor. You have to drive a long ways to your job, etc. I mean, fuel prices are a big deal here and does it get addressed? Um, I mean, sometimes you see these comments by people on the left talking about, we want to drive up gas prices because we want to, yeah. you know, kill off, um, the internal combustion engine, and we want to limit, you know, uh, emissions and all this. Well, does that really speak to a lot of people in the center of the country, or does that alienate them? I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I know what the answer to it is, but 
um, you know, this is, this is an important concern. And unfortunately, some of the things that get talked about just aren't uh, top of the minds of a lot of people in the center of the country. And I, I, I wanted to address your, your comment about nostalgia because it is used as kind of a weapon or a sword against some people like, Oh, that's just nostalgic. You're, you don't have an understanding of what the past was really like. Well, one of the points I want to make in this book is that, you know, this nostalgia can be false or fake or grounded in uh, fantasy. You know what I mean? But nostalgia can also be true in the sense that it really was in many ways uh, a great life back back there decades ago there really was a good country that existed where there were lots of people living on farms and had stable families and a good life and you know they enjoyed nature and there was strong community and strong social bonds and all of this um that did kind of exist now that doesn't excuse you know uh, bad behavior in the present, and it doesn't mean the past was perfect. But when people are thinking about the past in, say, an uh, industrial town in Ohio when everyone had good jobs and high wages, you know, that did exist. I mean, we don't want to dismiss those concerns or, you know, what people are talking to, talking about. I read an essay this week by a guy named James Pogue, and it was about going back to Ohio. And he was talking about this, this kind of feeling like things were better in some important ways in previous decades. And when people have that feeling or that sentiment or nostalgia, and it's dismissed by others or mocked by them, right. you know, maybe Thomas Frank is a good example. That that's not received well, <laughs> uh, and. and it, you know, it causes people to want to vote against the Democrats. So, I mean, I'm just saying it's, this is a complicated matter. It is. And and nobody wants to be looked down on. And, and I, it amazes me how some of the partisans of, of the Hillary Clinton wing of the party do not understand the projection, the very clear projection of elitism that was shown to the Midwest. Oh, we have better values than do. But what about... What about people are, I, I think there is concern that, you know, part of the nostalgia, you know, that it was a good old life, you know, it, it used to be, I mean, back in the 50s when there was actually a middle class, people had a hard time believing that there was, but there was, there was, you know, it could be a single, a male head of household who had enough of an income to support a family. What about this? I think a lot of people in the two coasts have a sense that the Midwest uh, you know, in its nostalgia, has wants to uh, cling to the uh, white Protestant male domination and control and fear of feminism and opposition to to gender ambiguity. And is is this an important factor in the Midwest, or is the Republican Party using this but not really understanding it? What's your sense of the reality here? My sense is, and I grew up on a farm in South Dakota in a small town, and I, my sense was, you know, the women in town, everyone worked. Everyone had jobs. Everyone worked on the farm. Uh -huh. I mean, there wasn't 
kind of the separate spheres that people talk about in scholarship. You know, and I would say um, women's historians have really focused on this in the last couple of decades with regard to the Midwest is that, you know, things worked differently out in the rural agrarian Midwest. I mean, women had a huge role in the way things were run and how the farms were managed and how to earn money and all that. And they were kind of in charge of huge parts of, of life. And, you know, this didn't dawn on me until many years later, but the, the place where separate spheres was much more, uh, much stronger and enforced more rigorously. That was kind of the Northeast. That, I mean, those kind of traditional gender roles were stronger there. Uh, I mean, where I grew up, everyone worked. It didn't really matter. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a different, it's a different vibe. It's a different history. It's a different culture. So, Fascinating. I, yeah. And one, of the, I, can I, one other thing, Bert, ahead, you please. mentioned central Pennsylvania. And one thing that has to factor into this whole discussion is this comment uh, made by President Obama about all these people are clinging to their religion guns and they don't understand the real world or whatever the exact comment was. Well, I mean, central Pennsylvania, use it as a proxy for central Ohio or central Indiana. I mean, where I live, uh, pretty much all the men go deer hunting in the fall and it's a big thing and they take their daughters and sons and, you know, it's not seen as a, a crazy thing to do. And religion and, you know, attending the church on Sunday and stuff, it's just seen as kind of part of life, your communal obligations. And and so when he said that, it really was a window into the psyche and attitudes of elite Democrats about mm-hmm the center of the country. I mean, it was, it was damaging. Yeah. No, again, nobody likes to be, uh, you know, looked down on and, and, and have these, you know, elitists and perceive that that was a, I think a big factor uh, in 2016. And one of the things that, that, that I've learned, I, no, no surprise to regular listeners. I list, I, I read a lot about the first world war. And uh, the, the fact is, a lot of Germans settled in the Midwest. And as you write, old world social hierarchies and privileges were broken down, fostering a democratic culture. And t- tell us about that and, and the German, in particular, appreciation of what you describe as the fruitful land, a precious rarity in feudal Europe. Well, one of the things I try to do in this book, Bert, is give people a sense, a comparative sense of how the Midwest fit into the world in the 19th century. And so I begin talking about some other places like Russia and China and Japan and Brazil, et cetera, just to describe, you know, major land masses and what was happening there in the 19th century. And, you know, these weren't great places to live. Likely you were a slave in Brazil. In Russia, you were a serf. You had no land. You know, the aristocracy controlled life. But if you're in the Midwest in the 19th century, chances are you owned your own farm, which was very rare and an amazing uh, advancement in your life if if, uh, you were so lucky to be in that time and place. And you had tremendous freedoms to... uh, 
worship uh, whatever religion uh, you happen to be. Um, there were great protections for that in the Midwest. And you had basic civil rights and you could go to court and you could vote. If you're a man in the Midwest, um, you know, women slowly right. went won the right to vote over the 19th century and stuff. But I mean, universal male suffrage, I mean, this is kind of unheard of in the world of the 19th century. And so these Germans, uh, to answer your question, especially Germans from Germany proper, which was highly aristocratic society, mm. very, very rigid. And, and, uh, and so they got out into the Midwest and they could uh, vote on their own and they could own their own, own farm and they could be their own bosses. And this is a completely different sense, uh, a way of living. And it created this small D democratic culture where uh, the people would have a voice and, you know, this this was this was a rarity, and that's why I say in the book that there was no place in the world which was more democratically advanced at the time than the American Midwest in the 19th century. Fascinating, and it's, it's remarkably little known today. And I've read recently uh, <clears throat> about uh, President Wilson's crackdown on Germans in the Midwest uh, in 1917. Uh, going beyond that is, you know, doubting their patriotism, which, as you're describing, that was just nuts. I mean, they came here to be free and to participate in a democratic culture. But, uh, you know, that, yeah. that that's the way it was. It Go ahead. It worked well for many decades, and they thrived and succeeded and had very strong civic institutions and just uh, dozens and dozens of German language newspapers. Yes. Uh, this was a very prominent component of Midwestern life, kind of uh, smashed during World War One, And yeah. so some of those old German ethnic organizations were snuffed out and don't really exist anymore. But were very strong for a long period of time. Uh, many of your listeners will probably have heard of the um, social theorist Horace Callan. Uh, he is the one who developed the idea of democratic pluralism, um, which became um, which became a goal of many people throughout the 20th century. But he developed that idea when he was living in Wisconsin in the early 20th century. And he noticed that all these ethnic groups were moving in uh, from different countries and different parts of the country and have having different churches and they worked well together and they cooperated and it was generally peaceful. And uh, it was the kind of pluralism that had uh, failed in so many other places in the world, but it was working in the Midwest. And Horace Callan uh, famously developed this into a sociological theory. And I should say there's a new book about Horace Callan that just came out. And um, it focuses on his early years in the Midwest. It's written by a California-based uh, historian named Mike Steiner, who uh, actually grew up in Minnesota and was a big Wellstone fan. Uh-huh. As am I. And there are, well, a lot of questions about what happened to him when he was killed in that 
plane crash. Anyway, that's another story entirely. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the Midwest and how little it's known and how important it is to the identity of these United States. Our guest today is uh, uh, John Lauk, founding president of Midwestern History Association, associate editor, uh, associate editor and book review editor of the Midwest Review, adjunct professor of history and political science at the University of South Dakota. He's got a new book out, The Good Country, a History of the American Midwest, 1800 to 1900. Well, as one of the dangerous things today is the erasing of history, largely by forces of the far right. They deny systemic racism, for example, insist that it not be taught. Uh, and we have forgotten this very high cost, as you mentioned, uh, of forgetting our once prevalent civic and traditional uh, values. And, and, and you say that, that despite the fact that it's so little known on, on the people of the two big coasts, the Midwest was the most advanced democratic society that the world had seen to date. How is it that those achievements are today so little known? And what is the price we're paying for that? We unfortunately focus so much of our energies and history departments on the American South, uh, which, you know, obviously is a very important story. And the American West, which is more romantic and people love the mountains and the scenery, et cetera. And of course, uh, the revolution in New England gets a lot of attention, but this big swath of territory and people in the center of the country, which was the biggest part of the country at the end of the 19th century, um, there's not institutional support for studying it. I mean, there are a dozen centers for the study of the American South and a dozen centers for the study of the American West and lots of professorships focused on Southern history and Western history, et cetera. There aren't any for the Midwest. There's not a sense for the study of Midwestern history or culture. Or, uh, I mean, in these big institutions in the Midwest, like University of Wisconsin and University of Michigan, University of Minnesota, they don't have specialists in their history departments focused on the region. Hmm. Let me give you an example. University of Georgia who is number one now in football, going to the national championship probably. They have 10 people in the department who teach about the history of the American South. The University of Minnesota has zero. Actually, the better comparison would be University of Michigan, since Michigan and Georgia are in the uh, playoffs here. Mm -hmm. Michigan has zero historians focused on the American Midwest. Georgia has 10. I mean, that just shows you um, that's emblematic of the problem. This is not a radical proposition, Bert. We're, we're not asking for a revolution here. We're just saying at the Midwestern History Association, we're saying, look, please, University of Michigan, University of Minnesota, uh, some of these big institutions, just hire one person to teach about the region. I mean, your state schools, you should give your students some access to the history of your region. I mean, it, so we're not calling for, um, you know, a complete toppling of the old order. We're just asking for small-scale, pragmatic change. Wow! Yeah, it, it, yeah, that that is that is surprising. And and 
education and teaching is just so important. And, 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 you know, the erasure of history, whoa, there's a lot of that. And it's it done some really bad things throughout history. And, and you write that in the Midwest, there was a zealous commitment to educating the masses, educating yeah. the masses so that reason and learning could underpin democratic governance. Boy, that is music to my ears, I'll say. Tell us, go ahead, talk about that, please. This is a great story, Bert. Amazing story that's just not well known. Um, The Northwest Ordinance uh, said the Midwest uh, will focus on education, and immediately uh, new towns, new communities went to work building schools, and by the end of the century, a lot of these places had literacy rates of, you know, 90, 95 percent. And again, this is very rare in world history. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're part of the poor, gray peasant mass in <laughs> Russia, no, none of those people were literate or, or educated. Now, this extended into college, too. I mean, colleges started to spring up all over the Midwest. Uh, many of them we remember are, are still around today and we know and are familiar with, like Oberlin College is one of the first places started in Ohio. And not only was it, you know, started early on in the history of the Midwest, but it also started um, very early on being a uh, open to African-American enrollment. And not too long later, um, all these co- colleges uh, began allowing uh, women in. Women, co-education for women uh, was essentially a product of the Midwest. Um, you know, women were kept out of major colleges in the East oh, yeah. and in the South for decades and decades. Uh, but co-religion started, or sorry, co-education to include women started in the Midwest in like the 1850s. And you know, no one knows this history. God, this really. is a very impressive history. I mean, everyone thinks of the mid- Northeast as the most progressive and they did all these great things. Well, decades before this was happening in the Midwest. And that's so little known. And to me, I, it's, well, as a historian yourself, it's so important to understand history. And, and you know, we have all these reassuring myths that ain't true, <laughs> you know, but this serve, they're, they're so simple and they serve... Uh, in place of real history. You say a different framing based on a more accurate history perhaps might reduce social tensions and democratic logjams. Boy, that would be nice. How might that work? What's your thought about uh, how it it could be, a different framing could be useful to uh, provide some, dare I say, progress to America? Well, I guess what I was suggesting there is that um, these these battles over history get a little frustrating because we need we need some more nuance and we need some complexity brought into these discussions. Um, you know, unfortunately, there are these histories like, you know, Howard Zinn's history and even the 1619 Project and stuff. They're too one sided. I mean, there is another side to this. There is, uh, there are histories of progress and advancements and good things going on. And unfortunately, you know, there aren't that many good histories that include all 
you know, the progressive steps that took place in the United States, along with all the uh, the darker aspects of yeah. American history. I mean, that's the kind of complex history we need. And it, I think this is what we should be emphasizing in our doctoral programs and in our history programs. And when we're teaching kids in in uh, K-12, I mean, American history is complicated and there's some bad stuff and there's a lot of really good stuff too. And I think it would help kids, you know, if they understand, uh, you know, the, the good things that have happened in American history too, you know, it inspires them to be better citizens and to take care of the Republic better and tend to civic duties. Um, and you know, it's, it's the honest, and it's the honest approach. People want to hear truth. There's a hunger for truth and balance. And people understand the past is complicated and we need to treat them as adults, in, in my view. I got to ask about this 1850 quote from William Gallagher that you mentioned, that the region, that the Midwest was a grand experiment in humanity. That's very intriguing. What, what, what do you think you meant by that? Well, this connects to... Uh, some of the sections of the book that focus on other places in the world during the 19th century where there was not a recognition of humanity mm. uh, in Russia, in China, in Japan. I mean, these are essentially feudal societies yes. Yes. in which certain people counted and other people were disregarded and not not treated as humans. Um, or in Brazil, for example, I talk about the slave trade in Brazil and the prominence of slavery. I mean, obviously, those people were treated uh, much different. They weren't treated as humans. They were treated as chattel slaves, property. And so this is what was in the mind of people like Gallagher. It's like, here in the Midwest, people are recognized for their humanity and they needed to be treated in a proper way. And we need to afford them basic human rights and civil rights. That's what I was drawing on with Gallagher. And the other thing about Gallagher that I liked was he made a strong effort to promote regional institutions and regional journals, and regional magazines, so that there was a culture in the center of the country that wasn't dependent on the eastern seaboard yeah. and whatever the eastern seaboard thought was important in terms of books to be published or newspapers whatever they covered and you know this is an impulse that continues to this day yeah. they want to build their own culture and they want to have a bit of uh, self-determination as we used to say no one ever uses the term anymore but that's a good term, and I, I think that explains a lot of the interest or the sentiments of people in the Midwest. They don't want to be dominated by the coast. They want to live lives of self-determination. People want self-determination, always have. And there's so much uh, American history that is, is little known, but really appreciate uh, you're taking the time, uh, Professor Lauk, uh, to be with us today. His new book is The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest, 1800 to 1900. Thank you so much. Very, very enlightening and uh, hopeful, dare I say. Thank you, Bert. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.